You are now tuning in to the Own the Build podcast. Join Sealing's very own Paul Hemming, where each week he interviews experts from the world of construction and asks all the important questions around intelligent construction management. Hello and welcome to episode 75, another milestone of the Own the Build podcast with me, Paul Hemming. Thank you again to everyone who continues to leave us lovely reviews on Apple. Keep doing them. I'm enjoying them. And they uh, they help us to uh, grow, helps with the Apple algorithm, among many other things. So please do uh, leave us a review if you're enjoying what we're doing. Today, we are joined by Claire Richards, who is an architect and the founding director at Footwork, a London-based charity with a big ambition to make communities more resilient. Welcome to the show, Claire. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me, Paul. Oh, it's a pleasure to have someone with such a broad smile across their face at the start of the show. Things are going well today, are they? Um, well, I'm an optimist. <laughs> I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I wasn't an optimist. Well, that's good because I'm a bit of a pessimist, so we'll balance one another out quite nicely. <laughs> it's uh, it's great to have you on the show today, actually, um, Claire, and it's really relevant, perhaps, is the right way to put it, because last week we had on the show a chap called Jonathan Smales, who is leading an organisation which is focused on creating a new community-focused neighbourhood in the southeast called the Phoenix Project. It's all about influencing neighbourhoods, influencing the design of neighbourhoods so that it can be low carbon, net zero. And it was a really interesting chat. And it leads us quite nicely into you, your organisation and what you're doing. So could you explain a little bit for the listeners about who you are and what you guys do? So you're quite right. I'm an architect. But I didn't train to be an architect until, oh, I was in my 40s. That um, is an unusual route to take, I would say. Uh, it, it, it is. You know, I began to train to be an architect when I was 18, out of school. Didn't have the maths. Uh, perhaps a lot of your listeners are out, out there who are in any kind of construction will be saying, how can you be an architect if you don't have any maths? There's a lot of QSs um, as well, and we pretend that we know <laughs> calculations and maths so there will be so anyway i went off with my tail between my legs um went and did something else and then happened to go into television and i went into researching quite heavy stuff then i went into breakfast television did very light stuff and then i became an independent producer but anyway um and then i was a documentary filmmaker for about 15 years but Footwork, which is our charity, it was an architecture practice, it's now a charity, it's interested in the other aspects. You were talking about the Phoenix Project, which, and I've heard Jonathan talk before about it. Do you know about it. it? Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, no, which is really exciting. And I suppose the bit you didn't refer to there is the social aspect of it. So... My interest, and particularly as a filmmaker, because I was making documentaries about social issues, I, I had this idea that if I became an architect, you know, I could help improve the places where people live, 
and then I quite quickly discovered that actually that's not about the bricks and mortar, that's about a whole lot else. And so my focus, since I qualified to be an architect and worked after working in a number of practices, was what can I do about helping to revive that social purpose? So the you, bit, yeah. No, go on, sorry. No, no, no. I suppose the bit that, that, that you weren't talking about with Jonathan, because I know the Phoenix pro uh, Project, the focus is predominantly around uh, environmental sustainability. And so I suppose my focus is on the other sustainable development goal, the social side of it. And we'll get to that later, actually. I think that's a really important point. I think Jonathan would probably contest that it is environmental and social, but you are right in saying that it leans more on the environmental side. What I'm interested in is it's quite an eclectic career path that you you took. Wanted to be an architect, came out of being an architect, went into the BBC, went and did filmmaking, did many other things, and then were drawn back to architecture to the environment to social and how the way that we live effectively one of the documentary series that i think you made was called tales from the wasteland which i understand was about urban and rural poverty could you describe how that shaped does does that impact the work that you do today because you say you got drawn back to architecture talk to me about well that. i think in in the days i was making documentaries um, you know, this wasn't reality television. This was a much more immersive exercise where you would essentially go and get to know um, a group of individuals in a particular community or a, or a variety of different communities in the case of a series like that. And what you learn from that, I suppose, is how communities are created. And communities are created across generations. So over time, and I think a lot of people make the mistake that, you know, you can make a community from scratch. Of course you can't. Click your fingers. Yeah. Of course you can't. Well, all the big and, developments say that, don't they? Creating well, a community. Creating community. It's a big buzzword now. Um, and then the existing community, if you like, or the difficulties, if you are trying to create a community from scratch, are sort of overlooked. Because, so for instance, you know, I've, I've been having a conversation um, about the uh, guidance uh, for one of the new London plan policies, which is around how do you determine the, the potential of a place to grow? So this is the design and character, characterization LPG. And, you know, the, the, the point is, it's very easy to say, okay, we can see the, the building types here. We can see the bits that have a value as built heritage. It's much more difficult, but I think anybody would be aware. What's, what's that social aspect that makes a place? What very it hard to define it on a piece yes. of paper, isn't it? But if you think, really you know, you, you, talked, you, you talked about neighborhood community being defined over generations you know i'll just think about my family home and how long we were in that place and you know if i reflect on it now with you saying that there are people who have always been in on that road in that little cul-de-sac almost that creates that cube community that neighborhood feel as well 
Well, a lot of the filming that I was doing around communities that in fact, for one reason or another, had real issues and were perhaps failing. And one of the key characteristics of a failing community is that people move. You know, if you've got, so in that particular series, for instance, one of those films was on family poverty. And, you know, very quickly seeing a pattern whereby if you are caring parents and your kids are getting into trouble on a tougher state in some urban or indeed a rural area, in fact, found very little difference, by the way, then the first thing that happens is you want to move. And that kind of instability is one of the features whereby that you can determine if, if a, a community is failing or thriving. So what as a filmmaker I was doing, which really informed then why I became an architect, was going and learning about, first of all, understanding the existing community and the issues it faced. So for instance, to do with, in, in this particular case, to do with inequality and, and poverty. And the second was the value, the collective knowledge and value that exists in that place, which I would say... For well, that place. For that place, which yeah. is the big thing that's overlooked. So if you, are, if you have a London plan policy that says, right, for your local plan now, you've got to go out and you've got to do a demographic assessment and understand everything from health inequalities to existing uses in order to determine whether this place is suitable for growth, then clearly the best way to do that is to do that. You go, you go in and you find who's there. And you know Now I'm no developer. I am a QS construction focus. I speak to lots of people in, in development, speak to lots of people on this show. Lots of our clients are more in the development space. In terms of, you know, I don't want to give developers a bad bad rep. I stand by them a lot, but a lot of a lot of the bigger developments, you know, you hear these stories about uh, communities actually effectively being pushed out of areas. I think about places in London specifically, you know, Elephant and Castle. There's many other examples where actually communities have been pushed away from an area where they have built up that neighbourhood, that community feel over generations, as you've said. What would your perception be of real estate and development in terms of like, what's the state of play when it comes to development? How do you feel about it? Oh, she's wrinkling her nose. <laughs> no, not not in distaste, because I think there's some real, some, let me call them thinking developers, you know, <laughs> and and let's not just think developers, let's, let's think investors, because this is all about commercial investment. And I think, you know, that's become part of the problem. Who could argue with a developer who wants to make the best return for that in, investment? Who would even argue with a with a um, uh, a local authority that has to negotiate hard around you know levels of affordable housing, for instance, when it is absolutely clear that what everybody has to agree on is the viability? But that I think is the difficulty. I don't think I think many developers and particularly those who now come and talk to us are beginning to be aware. That when you have the commercial tail wagging the dog, you lose sight of the social purpose of architecture. And not only do you lose sight of it, you lose the trust of the 
very people out there that you need to buy in to what you're doing. So, so you said you said you said something really interesting there about why developers are now coming to you. So what specifically? What are the reasons they are compelled to come and speak to Footwork? What are they? What are you offering them? Well, um, I I mean I'd love to say they're compelled. <laughs> my <laughs> job my job would be done if if I felt they were compelled. No, I think what it is is that there is now a real wish to get beyond the sort of token engagement and the lack of trust. So if you've, and I'm not going to name any names, but if you have been doing a development over over a generation, 20 years, more, sometimes it's 30 or 40 when we're talking about, and you have not got buy-in from the local community, and you are aware that some damage is being done, i.e. that you were talking about, you know, people being displaced. It's a really, it's a very real thing. And I think people are beginning to understand that, particularly after the pandemic, the benefits of good, of strong community, you know, 15 minute city, people living local, people more likely to live local. I think the penny is dropping. And so, um, we, it's not that we have any kind of magic bullet. It's just that we are exploring ways that you can gain that knowledge and that buy-in right at the beginning. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's not the only thing we do. We, 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 we are a funder as well. And I can tell you about that separately, but. Equally, I think that a number of developers and investors have found that building, you know, towers full of top end flats is not bringing the quick return to an investment. And there's also academic interest in this, what we call a sort of slow burn model of investment. So that if you invest partly in working with that community to understand what it needs and what it values, then you end up with, if you like, a better product. And if you have that buy-in, then over time also you're helping to build a, a local economy as it begins to be a thriving community. And that's, as I was talking about failing communities at the beginning, you know, that's a really good model a community where people have buy-in, they can afford to ask uh, to access what is uh, available locally. Because that's the problem, right? Isn't I'm going to simplify the whole conversation, but the gentrification of somewhere like London, but it happens in every city, or is happening in in every city, does lead to potentially existing or original communities being either displaced or being unable to access, as you put it, some of the amenities or kind of like the design of the new community. Is that, I find it hard to see because maybe I haven't seen it yet, but how are developers starting to think differently about the way areas are developed? Well, you know, a few developers have made social purpose and social sustainability part of their focus. And I think, you know, the, the the large developers, it's very difficult. It's like, dare I say it, it's a bit like turning a tanker. 
or let's call it, let's be a bit polite in that. It's a, like moving the needle a bit, I think. And so there are smaller developers who, and uh, investors, some pension fund and others, who are beginning to see this. And they're also seeing the value at the same time of community-led housing. And of course, local authorities are as well. There's some of them are having their own, you know, in-house developer, for instance. But I still think, Paul, it's 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 early days. But the the, the difficulty really is it, it's not about the things that uh, are talked about in respect of development, like oh, social value or uh, consultation. Those things have become very tokenistic. Absolutely. And, you know, everybody talks about that. This is about if you are if you are going to do something other than gentrification, you have to understand right at the beginning of the process all about that that community. If you're going to be building in Hackney Wick, let's go and understand all about Hackney Wick. Who are they? And what do they want? How do they live? How do they who's, coexist? Who's there? Yeah. What's already of value? Let's not destroy it and let's work with those individuals. So, for instance, in Hackney Wick, there's a huge artist's community. But if you put in development in a sort of heavy-handed way, they will all be displaced because they will not be able to afford. I used to live very close there, and I am not an artist, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it, it definitely is um, artist artistically heavy. I would say it's really interesting because we've talked a lot about ESG, but I would say predominantly on the show we've talked about the E in ESG, which is what you were alluding to earlier. You're talking a lot about social purpose, social value, and how we can develop that how we can build that into our developments. But let's take a quick break and we can jump back on that right after this break. Hello, it's me again. I wanted to share a quick story with you on why I co-founded Sealink with my best mate, Chris. Chris and I, we're both QSs, and this is going to sound sad, but one night we were sat in the pub talking about subcontract tendering and we realised the industry had a problem. Number one, procurement was too paper-based. Number two, it was too time-consuming, and every QS had their own unique way of doing things. And number three, perhaps most importantly, if you want to competitively tender, you need to know hundreds of the best subcontractors. We simply didn't. That's why we created C-Link. It's software to solve subcontract tendering. We wanted to remove these challenges and help the industry get better. So if you or someone you know tenders with subcontractors, you've got to see our software. Head over to our link, www.get.c-link.com forward slash podcast to find out more. I will include it in the description box. So again, there's no excuses. Now, let's get right back to the show. What a unique story. Claire, from the BBC to ESG. Unbelievable. So let's talk about ESG, the environmental side of environmental and social governance. is something that gets a lot of airtime at the moment, not least by my own admission on this show. There's a lot of really interesting people in construction, in property, 
innovating and trying to change the way we build and how we impact the environment. Not so many people. In fact, almost, I think I could count on one finger. And it's today with you where we're actually talking about the social side of ESG, which when I come to think of it, you know, we're 75 episodes in, probably 10, 15 have touched on ESG and the majority being E, as I've just mentioned. It does make me wonder why is it that we're not talking about the social side so much? So why is the social element of ESG so important? Okay, now I'm going to be a, r- a real pain here and I'm going to take a step back because... Oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> i tell you why. Because so where does that ESG come from? It comes from the UN Sustainable Development Goals. I can hear everybody yawning, you know. <gasps> you almost um, lost me there, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but if I was then to say that if you were to go and look at the um, national planning policy framework, which governs what we all do in the built environment, you will find that key element that is defined there as to the purpose of planning and development are these three sustainable development goals. So isn't it a bit surprising that that we have the environmental, economic and social uh, sustainable development goals up there in in lights, but it's the social that doesn't get the attention. Yeah, that's the point, okay. isn't it? Why? Yeah. Tell me why. So, so I will I will tell you why in a minute. However, <laughs> I was also going to mention for any architects out there. So the first, very first item on the core curriculum to the RIBA is the social purpose of architecture. This is something that's very important to you, isn't it? Social purpose. It is. It's social purpose. So there again, it's all there. But so why aren't we doing that? So I think ESG, just just to be clear for those who don't really know what it is, is an environmental, social and governance criteria that businesses now of all shapes and sizes are uh, committing to. It provides them with a sort of set of standards in the way both that they carry out their business, but they also relate with uh, to other other people, to their own staff, you know, in their working relationships. And for obvious reasons, because of climate change, environmental has stolen the show. And I wouldn't argue with that from a moment. And I think the problem with the social aspect of it is that people haven't quite understood what what that quite hard to define how to do as it. well, isn't it? You know, what do you what do you mean by the social? How what do you mean? Well, what what I mean is what I've already to referred to is that's simply involving people in the conversation and understanding the needs of social groups and committing to addressing them. Now, obviously, that depends what your particular, if you're a developer, it doesn't take long to understand that there might be some social needs among the communities that, that you're dealing with. And, but, and you know, other banks and others, uh, they are but just beginning to understand because I think of the pandemic. So during the pandemic, 
we all began to look at our neighbors and understand that it was a very unequal process the way we experienced the pandemic and people began to see uh, certainly in islington in my community in my neighborhood it became very evident that there were those who had real problems and couldn't access support yet we saw the self-help that began to happen we saw how communities began to say, right, we need their old, old people on this estate. We need to get together and provide them with meals. Their kids on this estate who can't get educated because they don't have an iPad. That kind of thing is, that's ESG in motion. And it's providing support to ensure that that kind of mutual help, self-help can thrive. And you can see, or I can see now, why the E and the S. The E is far more tangible, isn't it? It's something that you can strive for. It's less than two degrees. It's you know net zero. It's let's create products around products, systems, innovations that help us get to there. The S is quite hard to grasp. It's quite hard to hold, particularly if you're a developer, right? And and we're we're talking here about changing some mindsets and help and seeing mindset change for development for construction but it's um, it's still difficult for me to it's feel. i think it's it's shifting paul from a top down we are going to impose this development process to a much more collaborative one so what we have what the S means is developing this understanding of the knowledge and the value held within existing communities and then working with those communities to end up with a result that works that's win-win that works for all that works for everyone and and I agree it's much less tangible but on the other hand the the benefits i'd say are much more visible and and there've been some good exemplars and you know when you see this done properly the benefits become much clearer so 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 tell me because i'm not in industry anymore i'm not working on specific projects i'm working on a business my last project i guess that i was involved in was the first phase of battersea power station which I haven't been to that part of London for a few years now, but when I first started working on that project, when I was walking down Nine Elms in, in 2012, probably, something like that, it was quite a run-down brownfield place at that point. They then, as as a development company, pride themselves on building this community, in inverted commas, and I think the cheapest apartment there was sold off plan at 750k or something like that and then they went all the way up to four or five million i think sting ended up buying one all before we'd even started on site for phase one specifically how do you and i time times have changed now we're 10 years on from that point but how do you reflect on large schemes specifically a, a scheme like Bassey power station how should it be different i think there's a distinction between developments that are not uh, pre-existing residential 
areas. So I think that's one thing. I mean, so Battersea Power Station itself, you know, clearly it it uh, a lot of that area was not a residential area. That doesn't mean that local authorities should not negotiate away their commitment to in London up to 50% social tenure or social for rent and affordable, which which happens all the time. And I don't know enough about Battersea to know whether that's what, what happened with Battersea uh, or indeed with Nine, Nine Elms, um, where as far as I understand it, you have towers that are half empty. And you can imagine Same how with Battersea people, in many yeah. cases. Yeah. How how people who are on a housing list and been on a housing list for years think about that, and you you know you you have to accept that somewhere the commercial drivers around those developments have failed, and that part of that failure is not to engage in the social needs. Yeah, that makes sense of housing, and and so I don't want to castigate anyone, of course. But I think beginning to understand that there's an alternative slow burn model, where working with existing communities, you can uh, not expect an immediate return on your investment. But you are investing in the community as well as the bricks and mortar. And that you're working with the community to doing to do it and understanding its needs. That's the way to do the S in ESG, and that's the way in future to avoid more of the same. Okay, and so you guys are now a charity. You were previously an architecture practice turned charity. What specifically does Footwork do, and how can anyone listening get involved, find out more, or or support you? Well, I mean that's uh, that's kind of you. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me do a bit of a plug here. It's it's not quite like quite like that. Well, I've talked about half of what you can hear. I'm a bit of a campaigner. I was a campaigning <laughs> a television producer. Let's call me a campaigning architect. Why not? But the other half of what we do, we are fortunately a funder. We have a pot of money um, that. We are now focusing on funding local, very local social innovators like those who did some amazing things during the pandemic, who wouldn't otherwise get funding to try out a really good local bold idea to tackle a local issue. Now, I wouldn't say it's all to do with the built environment, but it's all, of course, place-based. So let's think a bit more broadly. So, uh, for instance, people who have a great idea might just be to address something on their own estate, or it might be somebody who has an idea to, um, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll mention some examples of something like that. And that is that, that Architecture Practice RCKA has twice won the New London Architecture Community Award for projects that they have done with communities, one of which is around something called Nourish Hub, which won in this last year, which is working with the local community to provide training and sort of uh, cultural experiences around food. 
and providing food to the local community can't afford it. That would be a very good idea. Now, as it happens, they could collaborate it with an architect um, to create an amazing space at the same time. So those kinds of projects have to start somewhere and then normally they can't get funding. So we have a, until now, we have just launched something called a people and place fund. And so if anybody out there is aware of such projects, we are the place to come to. So that's on our website, which is footwork spelt, as you would imagine, .org.uk. So we have this funding stream and strategy, and then all the knowledge and benefit that comes from those kinds of projects are what informs this bigger debate and how we begin to help things to change. Well, we're very lucky, Claire, to have you championing that debate for us. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for explaining in more depth, some much needed depth that we needed for the social aspect of ESG. Um, I'm sure our listeners are very grateful and it will change kind of the mentality towards it just a smidgen we're going to change, shift the dial it's all about starting that process isn't it i can see that what you're doing is brilliant i can see the passion that you have for it which is great i will of course leave all of claire's details in the podcast description uh links to the website and beyond i'm sure claire would love to hear from anyone and uh, all that's left to be said is thank you for coming on the show claire it's a real pleasure thanks paul absolutely and guys i will speak to you all again next week Have a good week. Cheers. Bye-bye.